Please join me in the prayer for illumination based on Psalm 66. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, we have come to see what you have done. We have gathered to consider how awesome your deeds have been. We've come to consider your power, your rule. As we bow before you and listen to your word, creator of all, we pray that the same power you displayed in creating the world would recreate us from within. And when you do, we'll be delighted to tell of all your wondrous deeds. In Christ's name, amen. So our Old Testament reading can be found in Genesis 1, verses 1 to 23, which is um, on page 3 in your Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give them light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give them light on the earth. To govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. 
This is the word of the Lord. We've been sitting for a little while, haven't we? Why don't we stand for the reading of our New Testament lesson? This is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, and it's from Acts 17, beginning with verse 22. And this is on 1113 of your Red Pew Bibles. This is just another way that we can give honor to God's word as he speaks to us by his spirit within it. So let's hear God's word, Acts 17, verse 22 and following. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Have you ever had doubts? Doubts, perhaps, about what we're speaking of today, that God made the heavens and the earth. Have you ever felt a little skeptical? Let me ask you this. Have you ever doubted your doubts? Have you ever been a little bit skeptical about your own skepticism? That's an equally good question to ask. I read once again this week that, in a sense, we are entering into a post-atheist era in Europe and in North America in different ways. Young people are resisting the culture's indoctrination. Young people tend to do that, don't they? They're questioning the very dogmatic beliefs that there is no God, no spiritual reality, just stuff. 
And as they grow skeptical about their parents' skepticism in many cases, lots of young people then are reaching out, aren't they? For some kind of power that might be beyond them, beyond the world. And this means that young people especially are experimenting with spirituality and religion again. Now Paul says here in verse 22 that the people of Athens were very spiritual, very religious. They are trying everything. And I think this means that in many ways, Europeans today are actually a lot like Europeans 2,000 years ago. Young Europeans, both then and now, are wondering about an unknown God. I believe in God, almighty maker of heaven and earth is the second thing the creed teaches us. Like last week, we'll ask these same three questions. What does the creed call us to believe? How do we live this belief? And do you believe it? So let's start with what are we called to believe? Paul is in Athens on a business trip. It's kind of like a long layover, actually, between the places that he intended to go. And he's waiting in Athens for his friends to return. And so naturally, when you're in a place like that, you do some sightseeing as well. Business trip, but with a little pleasure mixed in, right? And he sees the Athenian temples and their altars. And he's provoked. And naturally, being the businessman that he is, he wants to tell them, the business that he's on. He wants to tell them about the one true God that he worshipped, that they should worship too. And as he did this, a little bit of a stir was created, and eventually he was brought to the Areopagus to explain what he'd been telling people in the city. A little bit of a trial that he's under there. And so Paul takes the opportunity to introduce the Areopagites, we might call them, to the true God. Let's look at what he says to them. First of all, he says that the true God is beyond, is beyond. Now, like all of us, the ancient Athenians had needs. They had hopes. They had fears. They had dreams. But for each one of their concerns, they had a God. They built something of stone or wood or bronze. Uh, They gave it a name. They gave it gifts. And as these became their gods over time, they projected their own human emotions onto these gods. They developed myths, stories that explained human troubles that they were having in terms of the battles and the desires of these many gods. There was a story for every feeling. When bad things happen to us, they began to believe. It's not. It's because one god must have manipulated or defeated or tricked another god. When bad things happen to us, maybe it's because we haven't given honor and gifts to the god who happens to be winning right now. And these gods of theirs were like humans. They were like humans in the sense that they were completely within the universe. But at some point, some of them must have said, wait a second, what if there is another God that we're not honoring? And that's why we're having so much trouble. Even more scary, 
What if there's a God that we'll never know because this God is beyond all these other gods? And so in the Areopagus that day, Paul said, verse 23, in fact, I'm going to tell you about this God. This God that you fear, in a sense, but this God that you don't really know yet. And he says, verse 24, God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. A remarkable thing to say, actually, as a Jew, isn't it? Do you remember our reading from 1 Chronicles 17 last week? David suddenly realizes that he owned and lived in a mansion, but God, oops, only has a tent. And he starts to feel guilty about that. And so just like every rich ruler in the ancient world, he thought, yikes, I better build a house for my God so that my God doesn't get angry, maybe jealous of me. But then you read last week that God responds to David and he says, in a sense, David, what do you think that I am? Do you think I'm some little God like your neighbors have? That I'm homeless until you make a home for me? David, that's not me. You should know that. And in a sense, what he's saying is the same thing Paul says here. David, I don't need you. Paul says this to the Areopagites in verse 25. This God doesn't need you. And I think that before we can ever get to the place where we can offer our service to our creator, we need to also get to the place where we realize that our maker is, as the creed says, almighty. And this should humble us because we realize that God does not need us. I'm not almighty, as you know. I have a family, and yesterday was chore day around our house. I don't need my children to run the vacuum cleaner, to clean the toilets, to run the dishwasher. In fact, trying to get them to do it is actually harder than just doing it myself, right? I don't need them. But Lord knows that they need me to have them run the dishwasher and the vacuum cleaner and clean a toilet every now and then. God doesn't need us. He's beyond. He needs nothing. But we need God. And guess what? In that need, Paul says, God gives, doesn't he? And that's our second thing. First, God is beyond, Paul teaches. But second, from his beyondness, God is generous and gives. He gives from beyond. What does he give? Verse 25, life and breath and everything else. And Paul says, your own philosophers and poets, actually, Athens, believe this stuff instinctively. We are his offspring, says Aratus the Stoic, verse 28. In him, same verse, we live and move and have our being, said Epimenides from Crete. And Paul says, yes, they're right. We come from God. Our lives are only lives because they emerge as the, get, the generous gift from God's own life. God gives us, though, more than life. And Paul says, verse 26, God gives us nations and cultures and languages. Another way of saying that God gives us a sense 
of home and identity. Paul says the creator gives us a place on this earth that we can live in and thrive. That our maker assigns to us a period of time in which to live and thrive. The world, Paul is saying, is God's stage. But God gives us a time and a place and a role to play in his grand play. And it's all a gift from God who is beyond all of it. And this is the third thing. Paul says God is not just beyond. He doesn't just give from beyond. But that actually God comes near. God comes near. The whole reason, he says, that God made us and made a world for us. Made a nation in which we could live. A language to speak. A time to live. A place for us. Is so that, verse 27, this God who's beyond everything could draw near to us. Your creator made and placed you here so that you'd experience his goodness and glory and presence. That you could do so right up close. And Paul says God wants us, being close as he is, he wants us to reach out and to find him there. And that leads us, I think, to our second question. What are we called to believe when the creed says, Almighty maker of heaven and earth? That God is beyond, that God gives from beyond, that God is nevertheless right here. But second, how do we live this belief? There's so many ways, of course, but we'll look at what Paul says. Paul introduces this unknown God to them and makes this God known. And then he says to the Athenians, and I think the spirit of God says to us this morning, your move. Your ignorance, verse 30, he says, is over. And we can't say, oh, okay, interesting. Paul's saying, no, 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 this isn't interesting. (laughs) This is happening to you right now. Your maker and the maker of everything is right here in front of you. Beyond everything, but also right here and touchable right in front of you. God has even come, finally Paul gets a chance to say later in this passage, personally in Jesus Christ. Later on, he'll get a chance to explain this to people who end up following Jesus. But he wants to say that in Jesus, God has come not just to be here, but to welcome us, to remind us that we are, after all, guests in God's creation. That Jesus came to show us by his life and death and resurrection that our host... And our ruler who made everything is going to make everything, verse 31, that's unjust, just again. That he's going to make everything that's ugly, beautiful again. That he's going to correct every oppression and bring dignity again. That, as I think Tolkien says, that he's going to make every sad thing come untrue once again. So Paul says, look, you worship all of these statues. Underneath those things, you're really worshiping money and sex and power. But these false gods, they're not welcoming you. Quite the opposite. They've grabbed a hold of you and they're enslaving you. And he's saying, if you don't, Athens, if you don't, Zurich, respond to this God who has made you and who, unlike 
the gods of money and sex and power, actually has every claim on your life because he gives you life and breath and everything, then you're being a bad guest to your host. And you're not just failing to thank your host for the welcome, but you're actually kind of trashing his place in the process too. Wrecking the good experience that your maker has intended for all of the other guests to have as well. And what about Jesus after all? Jesus Christ, through whom everything was made, John tells us, represents God's welcome to his guests. Absolutely. But Paul says here, look, Jesus Christ, through whom everything was made, will bring God's just judgment on those who, in their ingratitude, never reach out to find and to thank their maker. To those who go on wrecking their maker's place and spoiling the welcoming experience that he intended for the rest of his guests. And Paul is saying, Athens, Zurich, we can't do this forever. God is not going to force you to be his pleasant guest. And eventually, if you keep wrecking the place, he's going to ask you to leave. But when you do, you'll be leaving behind everything that you were made for. And there's nothing more miserable than being cut off from everything that you were made to do and to be. And so we live this belief, brothers and sisters, by realizing that it's our move. God, within this world of his, has reached to us in grace and welcome. And especially in his son, who is the great host. We, we aren't ignorant anymore. And we can't live anymore like we don't know. We have to say, thank you. I receive your welcome invitation. And I'm so delighted. Actually, from now on, I'll be your guest in your world. And out of my gratitude, I want my words and my actions and my attitudes to act like I really believe that I'm your guest. Thank you for your welcome. So that's what we do with our belief that God is almighty creator of heaven and earth. And the last thing we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe it? Calvin famously said that the whole world is the theater of God's glory. A wonderful image. The world is the theater of God's glory. And then Calvin says something curious. He says, and guess what? The church is the orchestra in the theater of God's glory. I think that's really nice of him to you know, give us such a dignified position. I think we're also other things too, right? We're working the ticket booth and we're taking people's coats and we're ushering people to their seats. And sure, some of us are grabbing our instruments and we're making music, but we're doing all of this in collaboration in God's theater so that every woman and man and child has the opportunity to experience the glory of God in the theater that he has made and staffed with us to display that glory. We are the servants and the stewards in God's glory theater, and we're extending his welcome to others. Last week, John erupted in that joyous uh, shout, right? He said, behold, 
what lavish love God has lavished on us that we should be called his children. And this week, we realize that it's also our task as his creatures to say, behold, look, there is a great show happening, and I want you to see it. It's amazing to me that in his short time in Athens, Paul went from, Luke tells us, saddened and provoked, really irritated at all the idols that he saw, all the way to delighted that he had the opportunity to be an usher and maybe an oboist or something in the theater of God's glory for these Athenians. And he gets to help these Athenians at the Areopagus and elsewhere realize that, yes, this is an enchanted and marvelous world. But it's not one that's ruled by money and sex and power under the names of God after God after God. But rather, it's ruled by the God who not only made everything, but delights to let us call his world home. And then to serve him and to enjoy him within it. It's beautiful to me that in the Areopagus, Paul doesn't breathe even the slightest hint of arrogance or defensiveness among all of these people. He's not a jerk to these pagan Athenians. Because Paul knows, after all, that even though as a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he had a front row seat in the theater of God's glory, didn't he? And yet he missed the show when God went on stage in the Lord Jesus and introduced himself up close. Paul must have been dozing off at that point because he missed this. But nevertheless, despite his failure to see the glory of God shining, not just in creation, but in the face of Jesus Christ, God was patient, generous, and gracious to him and met him once again in the face of Jesus. And so Paul is kind to the Athenians and patient with them as God has been patient as well. Friends, when you realize that you're a welcome guest in someone else's house, you realize that you really have no right to be there apart from the stunning generosity of your host. Well then, friends, the last thing that you do is act like you deserve to be on the guest list. And these others, they really don't. No. It must become your delight to help others discover that they are guests of the great host. This host who is not you, but the one for whom you gladly work. God is our host, and God is our home And we are always the guest. And being his guest is actually the only way to feel at home. And the question then for us is, will we make ourselves at home as God's guests? Will we acknowledge the gracious welcome of our host? Will we be a grateful guest? Will we share and enjoy fellowship with our hosts. Isn't it an amazing thing that anyone, anywhere can suddenly come to their senses and acknowledge that their maker and host through Jesus Christ is present and welcoming them. And they can say, anyone can, God from here on out, 
I will be a grateful guest. I will even make my home here with you. I will serve you. I'll enjoy you. I'll keep the house rules. And I'll finally be home with you. Thank you for the welcome. Anyone can say that. And through Jesus Christ, be welcomed home. Just yesterday, I found out that 600 years ago, there was an Italian priest and Renaissance architect. Apparently, they could do multiple things back then, not just be a preacher. But this Italian priest and Renaissance architect said it really well. He said, the gloom of the world, the gloom of the world is just a shadow. Behind it, and yet, within our reach, is joy. And this joy, friendship, and partnership with the one who has made you and made everything, is not far off, but is close. Friends, the curtain between heaven and earth, between the visible and the invisible, between you, a creature, and your maker, the creator, is not up there, this curtain, but it's right here. And every step that you take in God's world, you, a creature fearfully and wonderfully made, with the image of God imprinted on you, in God's world, are invited to open the curtain to shake hands and even embrace the one who has made you. And so the challenge for us today is to say, not just, I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth, but to actually embrace the one who has made us in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in God, almighty maker of heaven and earth? Gracious God, we believe, help, please, our unbelief. And we ask it together through Jesus, who has made us and redeemed us. Amen.